I'm Liz Corey. And I'm Katie King. And this is True, True Crime New, New England. England. What's up, everybody? Hello. Welcome back to another episode. Thank you for joining us on this beautiful, chilly, brisk Thursday morning. At the time of this recording, we are going through an insane Arctic chill, which the lowest it's going to get is negative 43, I think, where we are. So... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> At the time of this recording, it is in the single digits, but with the wind chill, it feels about, what is it, negative 12 yes. with the wind chill? Yeah. And this is surprisingly the most mild it's going to be today. So. Yeah. So if you guys hear maybe the heater in the background or the wind whipping aggressively, or maybe a faucet dripping because we have to leave the faucets on so our pipes don't freeze, or our teeth chattering, <laughs> then you'll know. But regardless, we are here, we will prevail, and get through the story we have for you today. Absolutely. Without a problem, because we are dedicated to our craft. And we are built for this. We're New Englanders, damn right? it. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I was saying to you, Katie, that I'm on so many stimulants that I don't. my blood is just really hot <laughs> all the time. So even under all my layers, when I left my apartment to come to your place, I had all these layers on and I was still sweating. So I think <laughs> negative 13, push off. I got an iced coffee this morning. Yeah. So. <laughs> and I, you know what I'm going to do when I get home? Eat ice cream. Not going to change. It's New England. But anyway, guys, we thought just before we got into this episode, we could talk a little bit about some prevalent things happening in the true crime world. Um, and ironically, this huge case is just out of Massachusetts, which, you know, coincidentally fits our theme and our brand, but is so awful and Undoubtedly, you guys have heard about it because it's everywhere. Basically, on January 24th, there was an incident in Duxbury, Massachusetts, where a mom of three killed two of her children and then attempted to kill her third child and then herself. So, unfortunately, like I said, she did kill her first two, five-year-old Cora and three-year-old Dawson, and then she injured eight-month-old Callan and he ended up dying a few days later at Boston Children's Hospital. So obviously this is a very awful thing that happened, but it came out pretty quickly that she was suffering from postpartum psychosis, which is a huge, scary deal. And there's a lot of people out there you see on social media who are not understanding what that means and what that meant for Lindsay, the woman who ended up doing these things and why it led to this happening. People just don't get it. I don't get it. I don't have postpartum psychosis. It's something that when it's happening, it's awful. It's dangerous and it's, it's rare, but it happens. Even with postpartum depression, mm -hmm. um, I feel like mental illness and mental health, the stigma around it is so big that we don't really talk about these issues. So when things turn into psychosis, postpartum psychosis usually stems from untreated postpartum depression. It is really a taboo topic, especially when it comes to mothers, because people love to throw things in mom's faces like, oh, well, you're a terrible mother if you're having these thoughts. And, you know, it is genuinely a disease. Of course. And 
you know, she would not choose on a normal day to have done that to her children. Did she do it? Yes, of course. Mm -hmm. Does this postpartum psychosis completely excuse her and absolve her of everything that has happened? Absolutely not, because three children are deceased. They were murdered. Right. However, there was a reason behind it. She did not just nap and do so. She was going to very intensive therapy, I think about five days a week. Yeah. Her husband was told, do not leave her alone even for one minute, which people on social media, too, are kind of blaming him with, well, he he left the house for 25 minutes to go get food. Yeah. It's like, of course he did. He could have taken a nap. He could have fallen asleep. He could have turned his back for one second. He could have showered. Yes, absolutely. And it would have had the same effect because realistically, if you cannot be left alone for a minute with your children, you should not be at home with your children. You should be in an inpatient facility, getting the help that you need. Yeah. And was she in intensive therapy? Yes. That is a luxury that not everybody can afford. Right. With mental illness, regardless, especially if it is postpartum psychosis, you know, a lot of women will go to their providers and say, hey, I'm having these thoughts mm-hmm. and things can go south. Mm-hmm. I've heard of stories of women, especially women of color, moms of color who have said, hey, I'm having these thoughts, these really intrusive thoughts. You know, I don't know where they're coming from. This isn't me. I love my children. I'm, I care so deeply for my children. Mm-hmm. But sometimes my brain gives me these thoughts that will say, hurt your child, throw your kid across the room, right. run your kid over. The crazy, awful thoughts that are genuinely intrusive and part of the psychosis. And usually when these things happen, especially with moms of color, the media and, you know, the general public tend to have kind of a different perspective on it with, oh, they're a bad mom, get CPS involved, get all of these things involved, and she should be in prison behind bars. But I think this case in general, with a lot more people being able to understand this was postpartum psychosis, she needed help, this never should have happened. Right. You know, women deserve to be heard, and moms deserve to be heard, and they deserve to get the help that they need and not have the stigma to prevent them from getting the help that they need. Right. And I think too, this case is generating a lot of really good conversation about postpartum psychosis. I think you're right. Yeah. So that hopefully moms who are having these thoughts and moms who are experiencing this are able to genuinely get the help that they need and feel safe enough to tell their providers what is going on in their head. Absolutely. And, you know, as a maternity nurse, I see, I see postpartum depression postpartum blues quite frequently. If you guys are loyal listeners or happen to have been here since the beginning or just happen to be picking and choosing episodes, episode 12, we covered Constance Fisher, who was a woman in the 50s in Maine who had six children, two separate incidences. She killed three of her children, postpartum psychosis, went to a hospital, got treatment, came out, had three more children, Same thing happened. This was in the 50s. Mental health outreach for even just depression or anxiety, not a thing. So, and like you said, Katie, it's the mom's job. Everyone paints the mom as, oh, she's got to be the strong. She Mm -hmm. does everything, blah, 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 which is true. But postpartum blues, postpartum depression, and postpartum psychosis, which is typically the, uh, the order it goes in, is not the fault of the mom. It's not because the mom is not strong enough. It's not because of this or that. It's literally mental, the same way mental illness happens to you or me. Mm -hmm. It's not her fault. 
is essentially what I'm trying to say. And I'm not sure why she wasn't in an inpatient hospital. I'm not sure why she was still around her children when she was feeling these things. I don't know that story or I can't reason because I don't know. But what I can tell you is that if she did not have postpartum psychosis, those babies would still be alive, which tells me that she, yes, she physically killed her children. That was all her physically, but mentally she should not be held accountable because she didn't know. So that's the thing about postpartum psychosis too. And we talk about it um, in episode 12. If you guys want to go back and listen, Constance Fisher, her psychosis involved God telling her that kids shouldn't live past the age of seven or else they won't get to heaven. And so all of her kids ended up being murdered before they turned seven. So that wasn't because she was like, I just got, I want to kill them. It's because she, she, she thought God was telling her to kill them. That is psychotic. And that's exactly what happened here in a similar way. She was psychotic and she did not know. So as of right now, you know, the updates are pretty frequent because it's such a popular isn't the right word, but talked about case. And obviously by the time this recording comes out, things probably will have changed. More updates will have come, but it is something that is so prevalent mm. in the true crime community right now in the mom community. Um, and I think you're right, Katie, that it's bringing about a lot of really good conversations about postpartum psychosis. And what pisses me off, and I see, I've seen this in comments myself, people saying, she was a labor and delivery nurse. She should have known better. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That's the whole thing about psychosis is that you're not, you're, she's not herself. She's not going to be like, oh, yeah, this is, oh, yeah. And I'll be honest, and I'm sure you can attest to this, Katie. At, we're both nurses. As nurses, we are the worst patients. We will ride anything off and reason anything to say it's not happening to us. That's not what's happening. Did she do that? I don't know for sure. Can I see it happening? Absolutely. And I relate. We are the worst patients. Right. And she was getting help. She was in right. therapy, what, five times a week? Yeah. That's a lot. I just... People like to place the blame elsewhere, especially mm -hmm. when, you know, it's hard to talk about psychosis. It's not really well understood. Yeah. Um, it's not something that's talked about every single day, you know, it affects each person differently. So there's not a whole lot that can be said for certain, mm -hmm. but what can be said for certain is I think that when Lindsay comes out of this, she's going to be so horrified. She's never, I mean, her life's I, over. I can't imagine, you know, when she does come out of the psychosis, she, she's never going to be able to live the same again. No, She is just as much victim here. You know, she lost her children and her husband has been, the most wonderful human being releasing a beautiful statement about his kids. He loved them very much. And also asking the public to forgive Lindsay, which I think is the most brave and beautiful thing that he could do as a husband, understanding that his wife was not his wife in that moment. That was not the mother of his children. That was not, that was someone, a psychopath who had no idea that they were in a psychosis. Right. And honestly, what better person to say this is not who she was than her husband and 
the father of the children they had together. Absolutely. I think you guys should maybe look up the statement and read it. It's beautiful. It was so beautiful. It definitely moved me to tears. Oh, absolutely. Um, But he has since forgiven her. He's very well aware of the situation and what happened. He knows the facts. He knows that that was not the person that she was. Right. Um, And I think that if you guys are maybe second-guessing this case for what it is, I think maybe read the husband's statement. Absolutely. And read up a little if you're able to on postpartum psychosis. Yes. Postpartum depression, which Mm -hmm. is honestly very common. Uh, A lot of people these days have diagnosis of depression, anxiety. And as someone who works postpartum moms, if you have that prior to being pregnant, it very easily can translate into your postpartum period. So that's, you know, I feel a lot of sympathy for this poor family because it's just, it's tragic. It's tragic. And um, I think everyone needs to just reevaluate before they jump immediately on conclusions, you know? And I think it's probably surprises no one. If you guys are regular listeners that we feel this way, especially me considering I work with postpartum moms and newborns and uh, you know, I see situations where, you know, CPS is called, you know, like it's just, it's sad. It's very sad. And those poor babies, they're beautiful little children, had so much in head, you know, ahead of them in life. So it's a tragic, tragic loss. And the reason why it happened doesn't take away from the tragedy, but it's important to keep in mind the whole story. Right. And the why behind why it happened. Yeah. Yeah. So we just wanted to, you know, that's what's happening in true crime news lately. And I think especially because it's in Massachusetts, it's just so prevalent and it's awful. And it's been heavy on my mind, Mm. as I'm sure a lot of people have been thinking about it as well. On a lighter note, before we get into the awful case we have today, Janice and Ashley bought us five coffees. Thank you, Janice. Thank you, Ashley. Janice, we hold you very close to our podcast heart. You were the one behind our swear jar idea. Yep. Um, You've always been a very loyal listener and a very good friend to me. So um, I'm actually (laughs) going to... Janice told me not to do this, but for the Bias of Coffees, they wrote, love you guys. I started having my girlfriend listen to you guys and she was like, we should buy them coffees. I told her Liz is my favorite, <laughs> but because I love busting Katie's balls and she left me because yep. we used to work together and we no longer work together because <laughs> I got the hell out of Dodge. Yep. <laughs> yep. And she gets that. I'm sure she's wonderful. I, I have had the opportunity to meet Janice um, at your beach cleanup, Katie, and lovely, just lovely. So thank you. I'm glad I'm your favorite, Janice. I also <laughs> am aware that I am. It's And I appreciate it. It's okay. You know what? My dad favors Katie. So You know what? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> We're even. We're even. Take that, Janice. Yeah. This case was also recommended to us by Ellie, who sent it in via website submission. Ellie actually has a personal connection to this case. Um, she went to the same school as Emily, one of the victims, the little girl. Ellie's sister and Emily actually played together at their house and... Ellie knew Emily pretty well, and, you know, it's just, it's really hard when a case hits so close to home, especially with a little girl and someone you kind of grew up alongside, even if you didn't know her 
very well yourself. That's someone that your sister played with and she was over at your house and you guys had birthday parties together. So Ellie, thank you so much for sending this to us. I know that the connection to this case means a lot to you and you know, we really appreciate you sending it in. Yeah. You took a lot of time and it was a very long submission. And so it was obvious you were thoughtful and it was very interesting to read. So thank you so Mm -hmm. much. We also had Jennifer M send this case to us on Instagram DM. Um, she actually messaged us this morning and was like, you guys should cover this. And I replied back. I said, um, we're actually recording on this date. So it'll come out on this date, which is when you guys are hearing us now. So Jennifer M, thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks, Jennifer. As well as Chelsea through Instagram DMs. So Chelsea, thank you. This one clearly comes highly requested. Yes. It's a very interesting case and it is Rhode Island. So it's smaller territory Mm. and it is very interesting. People love, I mean, I know, and love is not the right word, but you guys know what I mean, are fascinated by a family annihilator, which is essentially what this is. So strap in, because it's going to be a lot. Definitely. Without further ado, today we will be covering the The Brendel family family murders. All right, Katie, please hit me with your sources. I would be honored. Oh. Thank God. I had the Providence Journal, the Los Angeles Times, law.justia.com, which personally makes my day whenever I see that a case we're covering has something on that website. Yep. AP News and UPI.com. Awesome. I used LA Times. I, of course, used Law Justia. I used the fuck out of it. I had three different articles from the UPI archives. I also had a Reddit thread on Unresolved Mysteries. I used some of Ellie's submission, and I also watched an episode of World's Most Evil Killers on Peacock. Ooh. Season four, episode five. And it's all about Christopher Hightower, who is the man behind these crimes. Okay. Recommend. There's, and I'm going to go back and watch more of them because it was very interesting, especially hearing it. It gave more details and more perspective, which I liked. Cool. It was September 22nd, 1991, and Christine Scribine was entertaining some guests at her Guilford, Connecticut home with her husband, Alexander. Suddenly there was a knock on the door, which was confusing because all of her guests were already there. Alex opened the door, and he was met with a plain-looking guy, balding, wearing glasses, and the man introduced himself and said that he was friends with a man named Ernest Brendel which coincidentally happened to be Christine's brother, so Alex's brother-in-law. And he had some upsetting news. So Christine and Alex, they let this strange man into their home. They put him essentially in the living room and said, we're eating, we're finishing up, wait here, and we'll be with you soon, okay? And after all the guests had left, they sat down with this man and he told them quite the tale. He was worked up, he was anxious, and he told Christine that her brother had been kidnapped. And not only had her brother been kidnapped, but his wife and their eight-year-old daughter had been kidnapped. So all of her family members, right? He's telling Christine all this, and they're sitting there like, what is happening? 
And then the man says that his own wife has been kidnapped and with his two sons. And it's this whole thing. And it was probably the mafia. Now, I don't know what Christine and Alex were thinking, but I'm sure it was like, what is this guy talking about? Right. What is he on? So this man, he basically told Christine that her brother, her sister-in-law, and her niece were all kidnapped by the mafia, as well as this man's wife and his children. And as proof that they had been kidnapped, and this blew my mind how stupid this was, he pulled out several items. Uh, including a driver's license and a bank card that belonged to Ernest, her brother, who had been kidnapped by the mafia. I don't know how he thought that would be proof. Like, Ernest, as he's being kidnapped, here, take this. (laughs) No idea. He also showed Christine and her husband some rings that he claimed belonged to Alice. Again, what? What? Here, quick. Save these. What? (laughs) Use them as proof for my (laughs) sister-in-law. Right. No way. So then he continued, and he shocked them a little more when he said that the kidnappers had demanded a ransom. $300,000. And in return, the family would be safe and let go. But then he reassured them and he said, don't worry, guys. I have been able to gather $175,000. I can get 50000 more from Ernest's broker accounts. And then I just need 75000 from you guys. And I can't imagine what they're thinking. I really can't. Probably like this is not real. Like th- there's no way this is happening. Then he took Christine and Alex outside where he brought them to, you guessed it, the Brendel family car. And he said, look. This is also proof that they were kidnapped. I have their car. Which again, what? Then he proceeded to open the back, like the trunk, where it was covered in blood. Which the man said, the Ernest's jaw was broken. It was broken in the struggle. And he was shoved in the car. And then now I have the car. It wasn't really adding up. Luckily, Alex was a pharmacist and also a physician, and he was thinking in his head, a broken jaw would not cause blood loss like this. So he clocked that in his brain. And also they were just so confused because what the fuck is happening? Why would you have their car? Why do you have rings? And that doesn't prove anything. In fact, it proves the opposite. So then, obviously, Christine and Alex were like, we need to call the police. No, no, he says. Don't. Your phone has been tapped. What? (laughs) And then he says he's going to, he'll talk to them later. He's going to go and he's going to find, you know, get that $50,000 and he'll keep in touch with them. And then he leaves in the Brendel family car. And so Alex and Christine kind of look at each other and they're like, what just happened? And then they went to their neighbor's house and called the FBI. And this ultimately began a huge investigation involving the disappearance of the whole entire Brendel family, Ernest Brendel, Alice Brendel, and their daughter, eight-year-old Emily. That's crazy to me that he's like, your phones are tapped. Don't call the police, but don't worry. I'll keep in touch with you on your tapped phone. Oh, I didn't even consider that. Hello? Yeah. (laughs) This guy, he was spiraling and panicking clearly, and you guys will find out why. But this story, he could have come up with so much better. Oh, my God. Just 
of course he had to bring the mafia into it. <laughs> and as you guys know, we love, we love the mafia. We love the mob. We think they're great and that they should not hunt us for talking about them. We just love the mob. We actually picked this case because the mafia was just a scapegoat because they don't commit any crimes. Never. And the Brendel family murders were not a result of the mafia. Not Therefore, even close. We love the mafia. Um, the you mob. know, just you guys shouldn't be used as a scapegoat. It's really disrespectful. It's unfair. It's really unfair. So if you hear this, remember that. And also take care. An arrest was made the next day on September 23rd. And authorities found tons of blood in this car, as was described by Alexander to the police. <laughs> right. As well as human teeth. Oh. A high power crossbow. Oh. And a huge 50 pound bag of lime that was laying empty. Oh. If you are not aware, dear true crime podcast listener, lime is really great for covering up odors as well as speeding up decomposition. It also is a common gardening tool, just as a note. Mm. However, paired with the crossbow and And the human teeth teeth and and the blood, it doesn't look great. So the police, when they made that arrest, probably were correct. 42-year-old Christopher Hightower was arrested and charged with attempted extortion and illegal possession of firearms, a stolen car, and stolen credit cards. Christopher was a Sunday school teacher and a beloved soccer coach, and he was pretty well-known and liked. Turns out he was not well-liked by Ernest Brendel. And that had been a recent change, because up until that point, they were friends. Christopher was an investment advisor, and he had recently become friends with Ernest because Ernest was a self-employed patent and trademark attorney. So they just crossed paths and things happened and they became friends. They had like a partnership. And so the fact that all of a sudden Christopher, his buddy bud, up until recently had all this stuff and his credit cards and his license... Yeah, it was just adding up to really weird solutions. Shit was also kind of hitting the fan in Christopher's entire life. His wife had just filed for a divorce, Mm -hmm. so that was a huge hit to the ego. Of course. And then his buddy Ernest filed a complaint with the Commodities Futures Trading Commission, which is a federal agency that regulates commodities. Sure. Ernest, in his complaint, stated that Christopher provided him with false information that cost him a $12,000 investment, Mm. and the complaint also went as far as to seek to have Christopher's trading advisor license revoked completely. Right. Which would end Christopher's career. Which is a big deal. So clearly, whatever happened, well, the loss of $12,000, I mean, sounds like he kind of deserved to be revoked of his license, but... Needless to say, Ernest was pissed. Mm. Understandably. And I think Christopher hated that and didn't want to admit to his guilt of losing all this money for his new friend. Right. And I also think that he took it really personally because Ernest made him look bad. Right. After he was already insulted and had his manhood insulted because his wife asked him for a divorce. Oh, yes. Which, this is the 90s. Yeah. So... And to make matters worse, Christopher was living with his wife, Susan, their two kids, 
at their in-laws. So his in-laws, uh, Susan's parents, and she wanted a divorce. Where would he go? He was going to be homeless. And he got so mad, so mad. According to Susan and her father, Clyde, he was drinking. He had had at least three glasses of scotch. And he begged Susan. He said, please don't divorce me. And when she said, no, I've made my decision. Like, I am going to divorce you. He said in verbatim, this isn't verbatim, but in a roundabout way, he told Susan that he had hired a hitman for $5,000 to kill her. And then he gave the hitman $1,000 more if he made it look like an accident. And then he was like, to talk on top of that, I have also hired a hitman to kill your parents and your sister if you try to take custody of the children. And so now he's digging himself. None of that was true. He's digging himself into a really deep hole that no matter what, she's never going to fucking remarry you or stay married to you. And you are absolutely never going to see your children again. Right. And you're unhinged. Unhinged. At the end of this argument, he finished off that glass of scotch and threw it as hard as he could against their wall or like they had a fireplace and it shattered everywhere and he left. And he did not come back until the next day, which ended up being September 20th. And he didn't come back for a little while. So that was immediately not good on Christopher's part for the events that unfolded afterwards. Investigation revealed that Christopher had purchased that high-power crossbow he was found with on September 19th, two days before he was arrested, and just one day before the Brendel family disappeared. Yes. It seems like he left that argument at the house and went to go purchase that crossbow. I think you're right. On September 20th, 1991, Ernest's wife Alice, who was 49 years old and a librarian, was last seen riding the bus home from Providence, Rhode Island. She was expecting to meet her husband once she got off at the bus stop like they always did, which is really sweet. Like, they get <laughs> off the bus together and they wait for each other and so walk cute. home together, swinging hands. and so Really sweet. He was not there. He didn't show up. Very unlike him. Mm-hmm. She's thinking, okay, maybe he just got caught up at work and let me just make the walk home by myself, I guess. Yeah. That was the last time she was ever seen alive. That same day, eight-year-old Emily Brendel was picked up from her after-school program at the YMCA, not by her dad like she always was, but by another man who told staff there he was instructed to take her home because Ernest got stuck in a meeting. For proof, he showed staff Ernest's driver's license. Which, to me, doesn't prove shit. Right, like... Like, why do you have his driver's license? I guess the staff, too, at the YMCA had also gotten a phone call earlier in the day saying Ernest would be stuck in a meeting. Some other guy is going to come take Emily home. Yeah. So here this other guy is. And by now, dear listener, you can probably take a guess who it is picking Emily up at the after school program in possession of Ernest's license. Yes. Someone who's clearly trying to cover his tracks because maybe he did something to one member of a family and needed to get rid of the rest. This idiot. I can't even deal with how stupid he is. 
To the credit of the YMCA, they did put up a stink. They did not want to let Emily go with this man. But Ernest, quote, had called earlier. This man had his license. And here's the thing. Emily did know Christopher because for a while, Ernest and Christopher were friends. So they had, he had been over their house many times. So she knew him. And that's all it took. Yeah. Right before Christopher was arrested, he had made two phone calls. One to Christine and one to Alex, a.k.a. Ernest's sister and his brother-in-law. And he said, guys, don't even worry. I've got the money. I was able to scrape it all together. You guys are off the hook. I've arranged for them to be returned safely. So don't worry. More details to come. And then he's hung up or whatever. Then he was arrested. So clearly, you know, I think at that point, Christine and Alex kind of had an idea that this was absolutely not true. They probably love the mob like you and I and know that they are just a scapegoat. And so they were suspicious from the beginning. Also because of the car and his possessions, all of it. And so... When Hightower was arrested, it was also discovered that he had a forged check on him, which was from the joint account of Ernest and Alice. And it was for a whopping $1,500, which if you're going to kill somebody or do whatever over money, $1,500 is not the move. Take more. Like, that's nothing. Go big or go... You're already going big. Literally. Okay? You can't even go big or go... You already are going big with murdering somebody. Yeah. Why are you stopping there? Yeah. And I'll say, why are you limiting yourself with money? Don't you want to limit yourself and be a good person and not kill someone? Well, that's also true. But here's the thing. He didn't just take the money, though. He also, before he left and, you know, was arrested, he made a note that he had something else he needed to fix. And that was the complaint that Ernest had filed against him. So, using Ernest's stationery, which had... Ernest's letterhead on it, Christopher wrote a nice, beautiful letter to the National Futures Association and the Commodities Futures Trading Commission and said that, hi, it's Ernest, as you can tell by the letterhead. Um, I want to revoke this complaint that I made about Christopher. We're buddies. He should keep his license. I was wrong, etc., etc. And he, like he was going to mail it. And try and, yeah, so this guy, he's leaving little, not even little, giant trails of crumbs to him. It's not even crumbs, it's like full pieces of bread. Yes, literally. <laughs> he's literally taken a loaf of bread and just dropped it. It's ridiculous. With a note. Yes. <laughs> with the receipt that right. you purchased it with. Like, literally. Yep. On November 7th, 1991, a woman was walking her dogs near the edge of a field in Barrington, Rhode Island, and she came across something incredibly disturbing when one of her dogs ran off and was sniffing at something and refused to come when called. Yeah. When the woman went to see what the dog was smelling, she found two small depressions in the ground covered in white powder. Hmm. Now, she was a gardener, so right off the bat, it did not take her much Thinking, even if you weren't a gardener and you see white powder, copious amounts mixed with dirt. Weird. 
you're probably thinking, okay, that's lime. Mm. She immediately knew what it was. Yeah. And she went home, called the police. And sure enough, inside the shallow graves were the bodies of 53-year-old Ernest Brendel, 49-year-old Alice Brendel, and 8-year-old Emily Brendel. The family had been missing for seven weeks yeah. at this point. Yeah. Emily was found in the grave under her mom's body. And they were found just a half mile away from their home and only a block away from the Primrose Hill Elementary School where Emily was a third grade student. Yeah. So naturally, the police sent the bodies for autopsy in which they discovered that Ernest had been shot several times in the chest with arrows. That's weird. Who do we know that has recently purchased a crossbow? Hmm. Huh. Weird. It was also noted that Ernest had non-fatal fractures to his skull, as well as arrow wounds to his buttocks, deep wounds, which is also interesting because maybe he was trying to run away and he turned around and was shot. Alice's autopsy revealed that she had been strangled by the way of the use of a ligature. And unfortunately, Emily's death was determined inconclusive as she had no outward signs of trauma to her body. However, due to evidence and just kind of putting things together, it appears as if Emily was drugged and then buried under her mother while unconscious. So they believe that she basically suffocated to death because like being buried alive under her dead mother's corpse, which is the most heinous and torturous thing I've ever heard for an eight-year-old girl. Nope. This guy is sick. During the trial, Christopher kept insisting that there was a gang. Actually, he, <laughs> about this gang, he said it was made up of two Latinos and two choice words we will not use to describe Asians. Yes. So instead, we're going to say that Christopher said there was an Asian gang. Because the terminology he used is disrespectful. Yes. Because he's a piece of shit. Of course. He said that this gang killed the family because Ernest was involved in the heroin trade. Which all of a sudden the people in the court were like, wait, what? Now he's a heroin dealer? <laughs> right. Okay. What? And that the family was murdered after Ernest didn't tell the gang the location of $2 million in missing money. Oh, that's it. Christopher claims the gang members forced him to bury the bodies of the Brendels or else the gang would kill his wife and two sons. Oh. So he had to defend for himself, is what he's saying. He also played the victim oh, God. and said that he has suffered since he was arrested for the murders. Oh, my God. He stated, quote, In addition to that suffering, I also experienced the nightmares of the Brendels' deaths. Their deaths are certainly a tragedy, but it is not the biggest tragedy here. The fact that there's a large drug ring still operating today, that is the biggest tragedy. I... What? what? A drug ring that you made up of people of people of Asian descent and Hispanic descent, which typically gangs like that are intermingling. <laughs> so you had a mixed gang have you kill your friends. Right. First it was the mafia. Yeah. Which now never. A, a mixed race gang, which normally with gangs, if you guys are not familiar, 
they would not be working together like that to go after it makes no it sense it just doesn't check out for so many reasons but that's a good one and i can't imagine that anyone in that courtroom any of those police officers any of those jurors were like oh yeah no yeah 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 and that explains why you had their car and the blood and the bro- the teeth in the back and oh the lime the lime and the you know oh okay right and your personal motive Mm. For killing Ernest, which was that he filed a complaint against you that would jeopardize your entire career. Oh, and also your wife wants a divorce and you'll be homeless because you live with her parents. Right. Sounds like your life sucks. (laughs) And I think that was, it was absolutely his motivation. Mm. It took less than six hours for the jury to convict Christopher for the murders. I can't even deal. He tried, and we see this all the time, he did try to say he was not responsible because he was insane. They all try that. <laughs> Unfortunately, that didn't work for Mr. Hightower. Um, They were like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Clearly, that was made up. Very, You're very creative. We'll give you that. But the details just don't line up because you fabricated the whole thing. And also, you murdered, you know, you murdered this family. And so he was convicted of the three murders. And received three life sentences in prison. And he was also sentenced to at least five years apiece on the other counts that didn't involve the murders. Like the, you know, fabrication, having possession of Ernest's car, and the cards, and all that. So he was sent right to jail. In like six hours to decide, who? yep, that checks out. They got him on everything. Like the charges. Mm-hmm. They got him on kidnapping a child under 16. Her murder, breaking and entering, forging and counterfeiting, unlawful burial. Yeah. They got him for literally every action that he did, they got a charge for him. I think he was charged with 11 different things. Yep. Including, obviously, the three murders, which is good on them. Good. Get his ass and he will never see the light of day. And he never did see the light of day again because he was obviously sent right to jail for fucking ever, and that is where, as far as we can tell, he remains to this day. He was actually just the seventh person in Rhode Island history at the time to receive life without the possibility of parole. Interesting. That's pretty crazy. That is very crazy. I think what did it the most for me was how he killed Emily. It's barbaric and overkill, and obviously the whole thing did not need to happen. But that is so messed up. That poor little girl. The whole family. And all just because his own personal life was shit. Because he made decisions that led to losing somebody he promised he would take care of. Losing $12,000. It's his own fault. Right. And grow a pair. Own up to your own mistakes. And do something to try and fix it. Don't try and fix your problems by murdering a family. Yeah, no, Because it's not going to get you anywhere. It's going to create more problems, obviously. Yeah, I would say so. And it did. And now he's in jail. And he has been. Also, not even a good story. Like, even from the very beginning, you could pick apart, why did you have their car, man? Like, that is, come on. His license, why did you have his credit card? Stupid, dumb idiot. Ugh. That is the horrible, very sad, 
tale of the Brundle family murders at the hands of idiot Christopher Hightower. It's unbelievable. It's kind of nuts. Thank you, everyone who sent that into us. Yeah. Uh, obviously, like we said at the beginning, pretty popular of a case, and rightfully so, because it's weird. Mm-hmm. It's really messed up. If you guys have cases that you want to send us and get shouted out for, like our friends at the top of the show, you can send us your case suggestions on our Instagram and Twitter, which are True Crime Any. All lowercase. Or you can email us at truecrimeny at gmail.com. We also, of course, have a website, truecrimeny.com. You could go to our contact page and use our handy dandy submission tool to send us cases based in New England, please. As well as maybe questions, comments, concerns, compliments. Sure. Thank you so much again, Ellie. Yes, thank you so much. And if you would like a shout out as well for sending a case in, for buying us a coffee, like we also did at the top of this Mm -hmm. episode, keep on scrolling down on that contact page and you can click the link to buy us a coffee. But that is totally up to you. Most importantly, we are just thankful that you are here listening to us today. Always. And if you guys think of it, you can go on Spotify and give us a star rating or you can go to Apple Podcasts and give us a star rating and or a written review, which we appreciate Always. Typically, five stars is the move, but (laughs) I'm not going to tell you what to do, but you should probably do five stars. And with that, we'll see you next week. Bye. Goodbye. Goodbye.